Hello, it's Joe here with a pre-podcast message this time to say a few things. First of all, that this episode is the last Wise Women podcast in Series 1. And I wanted to thank everyone who's taken part and also everyone who's given me feedback about these interviews. Every email, every text, DM, comment, follow, and sometimes even phone calls have meant so much. I also wanted to let you know that all these podcasts from Series 1 are now being broadcast on an hour-long radio show on a radio station called Tone FM every Wednesday evening at 6pm with some extra chat from me, great music from some of the best female artists ever, which I get to handpick, which is very exciting, let me tell you. And I also get to play the song choice that each wise woman picks at the end of their podcast. And that's something I couldn't do because of royalty restrictions with podcasts online. So the rules are different with radio and being able to do that makes the whole thing feel really complete. So I hope you'll listen. You can tune in to the Wise Woman Radio Hour online at www.tonefm, that's T-O-N-E, tonefm.co.uk, and just click Listen Live. But obviously, bear in mind that if you listen live at any other time other than 6pm on a Wednesday, you will hear the radio station's output because live radio is very different to listen on demand podcasts. So Wise Women is going to be back for a second series. If you have an amazing story to share or you know an inspirational woman, please do get in touch with me and perhaps I can help to communicate those words of wisdom to wider audiences. And finally, I wanted to say that although Wise Women is taking a break, I am treating and training. So if you want to find out more about my work, which involves helping women and men and children to connect deeply to their emotions and to their energy systems, which is also called chi or prana in Eastern cultures, then get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. My website is www.wisewomen.org.uk. Now, though, let's get on with the final episode of Wise Women for Series 1. But be warned, it may cause you to reevaluate what's really important in your life. Mandy Haggith was born and brought up in Northumberland and considers her upbringing to be fairly conventional. After leaving full-time education, she describes her working life as being spent chained to a computer in order to use artificial intelligence to find technological solutions to our environmental crises until she met her now-husband, Bill, an activist in his own right. Their union was the catalyst for her to run away and live in the woods, on a croft, in acres and acres of Scottish paradise. Her living environment is now the intimate inspiration for her work as a writer and campaigner to help find human solutions to our environmental crises. You see, she never quit her goal. She just tuned into her own innate intelligence rather than artificial intelligence, to be the change that she wanted to see in the world. Mandy's story is one of enormous integrity and may make you question if what you think, if what you say and if how you act and how you earn your living are as aligned as they can possibly be, which, of course, is the definition of integrity. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm actually pleased to catch you on dry land because at this time of year, which in the UK is summer, you're usually sailing and quite sea swept, aren't you? 
Yeah, certainly in in recent years, I've become addicted to sailing. So yeah, Bill and I have a small sailing boat and we at this time of year, we'll spend as much time as possible out on the sea in it. Yeah. I, I want to ask you actually about your love of the water later, but first your challenge is really about how you knew you had to change your life and remember your connection to Mother Earth. So before we talk about who you are now and where you live now, which is extraordinary, tell me about your childhood, which you described to me as very conventional. Well, it's certainly normal, I think. I mean, I don't don't know any other one, but I was brought up in Northumberland and, yeah, just lived in a semi-detached house with one of three children, mum and dad normal I think um whatever normal means but um yeah there was nothing terribly unusual about it I don't think and now talk to me about the job you did because when we spoke about doing this podcast uh you described yourself to me as being an academic who was and this is quote unquote chained to her computer not literally obviously but metaphorically that that that's how it felt for you well yeah so I I went to university and and studied maths and philosophy and then got interested in artificial intelligence and yeah spent 10 years did my PhD in artificial intelligence and spent 10 years in the university system researching and teaching doing weird things with computer programs really so I spent my entire time plugged into the computer and yeah it was a a bizarre a bizarre thing to do really I sometimes used to say I was a bit like somebody ordained into the clergy who didn't actually believe in God in the sense that I I think I never really believed and if I know I never believed in the premise of artificial intelligence that you can make a machine do the things that that we as human minds can do and and yet I think I was intrigued and um, intrigued by how far you could go with computers intrigued enough in a sort of horrified sense I suppose to some extent and what was it you were actually looking for on the computer what was the aim of your job well I used to joke that my research question was can AI help to save the world in the sense that I was always acutely aware that we were facing an environmental catastrophe and so I, I did wonder whether it was possible to, instead of using computing technology for guided missiles and you know all those sorts of things, whether we could actually use it for good. I concluded really after 10 years that the answer to my research question, can AI save the world, is no. And it was really time to get out and leave and go and do something serious to try to help save the world's forests. Well, that was my next question, actually. Was there an exact moment where you remember, you know, I've got to pack my job in, I've got to go and live in the woods, and I've got to go and save the the forest with my own humanity rather than through a keyboard? Or did that realisation happen very slowly? Uh, no, it was quite it was quite dramatic, really. I was, um, one of my research projects involved um, working with land managers around Europe and one of them was a crofter up in the northwest highlands and we got on really well together and we ended up doing a a big journey together and and fell in love and that was the trigger for me to say right there are more important things in life and there are more important things to do and Bill and I basically he gave up his job and I gave up my job and we set off to to work together and travel and try and see what we could do together to save the world's forests. 
I want to ask about Bill now, actually. But before I do, in the background, Mandy, I'm not sure where you are, but in the background, I can hear the most beautiful bird song. So are you outside now on Skype? How's it working? Uh, no, I'm, I'm in. I, yeah, OK, so I live in the woods and um, in I don't I, we don't have a house. It's rather unconventional. We have a. A, a set, whatever the word is, of w- several huts and sort of little wooden wooden buildings, sheds, really. And you're um, in one of those, which is, I think, honestly, Mandy, the bird song is incredible behind you. It's, <laughs> it's such a lovely noise. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk more about your house, actually. Well, a set, I think, is a better description, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's literally all over the place. But I'll come back to that in a second. I just wanted to point out the birds in the background because it really is beautiful. But let's get back to Bill because he's a well-known activist in his own right, isn't he? He's received an MBE for services to environmental and sustainable development. I know he's been involved in two community buyouts which revolutionised the political and economic landscape of Scotland. And mm. your aim when you got the Croft in the early 90s was to restore the ecosystem as close as you could back to its wild state that's a huge undertaking did you feel at all daunted well it's really bill's croft because that's the way crofts go that there has to be an individual crofter legally speaking and bill is never daunted by those sorts of things but really it's not a daunting prospect in the sense that you know the the land here wants to be a forest it it's it's just a matter of leaving nature to its own devices you know the the trees grow of their own accord you know the birds spread the seeds and the wind spreads the seeds and the mice spread the hazelnut seeds and and you know it it all happens of it of its own accord so it's a matter of managing by not interfering and just replacing meddling with wonder really well Um, that's a great answer but very difficult for most people to grasp yes i think there is a terrible tendency for um for us to think that Good land management involves farming in a sort of intensive manner. I mean, we we have a an important role to play in the sense that, you know, we breathe in what the trees breathe out and we breathe back out what the trees breathe in in, in that in that sense. So our little additions of localized carbon dioxide are absorbed by the vegetation. And our disturbance, our wandering around the place um, keeps the deer on the move and the deer are the primary threat to the regenerating woodland um and we do, we haven't fenced them out um because if we fenced out the deer that would also fence out the badgers and otters and pine martens and foxes and and so forth so we didn't want to do that but but keep simply keeping the deer moving and keeping them knowing that we're here is is sufficient to enable the woods to regenerate so you're really so. you're really talking aren't you about living in harmony absolutely yeah And in that sense, my original question was, you know, is it daunting? Is it a big undertaking? But when you live in harmony, it's effortless. (laughs) Absolutely. It's just relaxing into it and realising that actually we are forest animals. And yeah, it is our our natural habitat, actually. And and it feeds us in all sorts of ways, you know, I mean, very directly with brown berries and chanterelles and nuts and so forth. But much more importantly, through nurturing our souls i think to to put it bluntly mm. um, gosh I'm, I'm getting goosebumps hearing you talk about that it makes so <laughs> much, it makes so much sense to me going back to your and the birds are singing along you know they are i think <laughs> i think they want to be part of the podcast going back to your job and your decision to leave i think most people kind of look at the news and the statistics and 
they think, you know, what's the point in me giving up to do something like you're doing? Because I can't make a difference. I'm only one person and, you know, I need to keep my money coming in to pay my mortgage. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, I think, wouldn't feel brave enough, courageous enough to think that they could make such a difference in the world. What would you say to to people who feel that way? Well, I think there's a, a liberation that comes with getting out of the rat race and giving up the, the things that our society wants us to believe are necessary securities. But actually, by tying us to all of that security, we rob ourselves of of freedom. I certainly found that I was I was thoroughly miserable living in a city with a mortgage and a full-time job. And then when I gave it all up and adopted freedom instead of security, then I became much, much happier. If you go camping for a weekend, then it's it's you start to get that sensation that actually our needs are much less than we think that they are. Mm-hmm. And as long as we've as long as we've got basic shelter and um, you know, from the worst of the weather and enough food and drink, that's really all we need. And we actually think that that we need all of this paraphernalia in the world that we don't actually need at all. And so, you know, it's it's been amazing because we, we, we're not on grid, you know, we're not on the on the electricity grid. So we have a, a couple of solar panels and a, a little trickle charger wind generator and have some you know 12 volt batteries and which means that we don't have much electricity and so we use it for the things that we really need like for example you know I've got internet and computer and printer and lights and music um, but we don't have any of the other clutter that that a lot of people have in terms of all the electrical gadgetry that you surround yourself with if you've got full mains electricity you know like dishwashers and kettles and I don't know, bread machines, all these things I see in people's kitchens that, that um, yeah, so I think there's a huge amount of stuff that we have in our lives that you don't actually need. And, yeah. it's, and if, you, if, if you give them all up, then um, it's amazing how kind of light and free you feel. Oh, my goodness. Again, that's such a great answer, because I think a lot of people get addicted to a lifestyle, don't they? And they, I've heard lots of people say, you know, I, I need the money. I need to earn the money because, you know, my survival depends on it. But actually, they're not talking about their survival. They're talking about their lifestyle. Yeah. And that, that becomes a habit, I think. And yes, we don't need it as such. I can really relate to that as well, Mandy, because there came a point when I felt, and again, it was quite dramatic and it was as a consequence of falling in love with an older man too, um, where I realised, you know, I had to give up my job and contribute to something bigger than myself. Now, it's not saving forests or anything like that, but I feel very called to help other people spread their inspirational messages, hence, you know, this podcast. And also, as I know we've talked about the stuff side of things and the lifestyle side of things, but I think I heard Tony Robbins say once that human beings actually have a need to contribute beyond themselves, to not just be about my life, my mortgage, uh, my bills, but to actually give something to the, the wider community. And again, that's something... I imagine you'd agree with too. Yeah, that's been an important um, thing. And there's also a thing I think about living in a in a remote community that the fewer of you there are around, the more you know each other. So, yeah, I having having lived in an, in a city where you know it's you just don't know your 
your neighbours closely um, very well at all because everybody's basically sort of not minding each other's business. Whereas in a small community, there is um, a necessity really to to interact in a in a different way and and look out for each other. And I think that's that's an important thing for us to do as as human beings. And yeah, I'm I'm all rambling. No, that makes perfect sense. And it's also a, a perfect time, I think, to ask you more about your where you live now, your set, which I think is such a brilliant way of describing it. But before you tell us about the set, can you kind of build a picture of... So I kind of want to zoom in. If you imagine Google Earth, zoom into your part of Scotland and then the community and then into your set. So can you build a picture of your environment for us from that uh, bird's eye view right into where you are now? Well, OK, so it's the top left corner of Scotland. So the next piece of land is the Isle of Lewis, the northernmost of the Scottish Hebrides. And then beyond that is just the ocean up to Iceland, I guess. So that's geographically where we are. More locally, it's a, a little um, township called Achmelvich, which has a beautiful sandy beach and then uh, a headland and a sea loch called Loch Row. And our croft is on the shore of Loch Row. It's a kind of rocky, boggy, woody kind of peninsula sticking out into the loch. And in terms of your set, you basically, this is, I'm so drawn to your story. This is the bit of your story I love the most, I think, is uh, you have places where you live at different times of the year. So in autumn and winter, I think you retreat into the woods and then in spring, summer, you live close to the shore in a caravan. Is that right? Yeah, we never, we couldn't afford to build a house when we first moved onto the croft 20 years ago. And so we, we just pulled a caravan on because um, we had a little caravan that we bought for a few hundred quid. And then we built a shed to to be able to work in. And then we built another shed to have a bath in. And, and it gradually evolved. And the whole croft is uh, 24 acres. And so it seemed to make sense when if we were going to put another shed up for for something else that we would sort of choose the best place on the croft for that and so they end, they've ended up being distributed about the croft depending on where the right seeming place was for that activity um and so eventually we built this building i'm in now which is a studio and and that's kind of nestled in in the woods, sort of at the extreme far side of, of the croft from where the winter cabin is, that we, which is sort of in, in the most sheltered corner where, where we retreat to for the winter. And yes, and we, we, um, we actually we got a caravan and, and put it right down on the, on the, sh- on the shore of the loch to, to be our kind of spring and summer place. It gets to sort of rocky icy and treacherous on the rocks to go up and down to it in the winter months but it's the most beautiful setting to be in in the in the summer when the weather is good you just can sit and watch the seals and the otters and and so forth and have a little dinghy down there obviously on the on the water and it's become since we got the sailing boat it's become sort of a bit more extreme that in the summer we're actually kind of like right offshore not just down at the shore so it sort of evolved without us really thinking about it, although we did talk about it a lot. Bill and I travelled a huge amount with our um, forest work. Um, I've been incredibly privileged to go to, you know, most of the most beautiful places in the world um, where the forests still are. And on one journey in northern China, um, the Kazakh people who are 
transmigrant. They move up into the mountains in the winter and then, sorry, in the summer, and then they come down in the autumn and back down onto the warmer plains. And we spent a, a wonderful 10 days kind of watching their migration. And when we returned to the croft, realised that actually there was something similar in what we were doing in, in that seasonal migration from one part of the croft to another. So I think it's actually a really, really fundamentally natural pattern of behaviour for us to do that. Yeah, I love the idea of transmigration and how amazing that you and Bill on some level knew to do it without any formal training, if you like. It was instinctual. And I know you come from this place, don't you, of not connecting and reconnecting to nature, but just remembering, remembering our instincts. Well, I just feel that we're part of nature. So I I mean, I think that I kind of have a problem with a lot of language that gets used around um, our relationship with nature in in our society, which seems to begin from a, an assumption that we're somehow not part of it and that um, we need to connect with it, where as opposed to, I, I think I just think that we are, we are part of it and remembering that is all we need to do. Yeah, so immersion in nature just is, is actually a natural state. That's because we are, it's just being part of what we're naturally part of. Um, mm, although most people don't live like that, do they? No, I think most a lot of people, certainly in our society, are 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 brought up to have that conception that that somehow nature is out there and separate from us, and that you have to therefore do work in order to go and get to make contact with it or something, uh, as opposed to just stopping and listening and smelling, using all of our five senses. And all of those five senses are carrying messages. As Edwin Morgan says, nothing is not giving messages and yeah there's there's an as long as you stop and listen and smell and taste and touch and 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 look there is we understand it all because we're because we're part of it Mm. um there's there's an amazing writer called david abram who um who wrote a book called the spell of the sensuous and another book called becoming animate and i think he articulates really well the fact that the earth is a sentient being and we as part of it are part of that sentience um and and so it's as though there's one global mind and if you relax you realize that you're just part of that global whole so for, for me that's that's the source of poetry and why most of my poetry is nature poetry i think it's that expression of of wonder at what we're part of what i'm part of it's interesting because i heard the author caroline may say once that we are never not in nature you know people have this grand yes. idea that we have to be near beautiful lakes or ancient woodlands or the vast ocean to experience it but as i'm sat here now you know i'm okay i'm in a a, a studio but i'm still breathing air and behind yeah. me if i look out the window i can see acer trees and maple trees uh, you yeah. know i'm always in nature aren't i absolutely absolutely yeah, you got it. And we, you know, we drink water and that, you know, is rain. And, <laughs> you know, it might have, it, it's, it paused, it's paused for a while and been channeled towards us, but ultimately it's still all rain, you know. And yeah, like, like you say, you're breathing in what the trees breathe, breathed out probably not that long ago. And yes, absolutely. We're well, part of it. I'm glad you mentioned trees there and that I talked about my maple and acer trees in the garden because that is your big passion, isn't it? You are, um, well, you love trees and you write poetry about trees and this is yours and your husband's mission is to, you know, live in harmony with trees. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we it's a, it was a common bond for us that we, we both loved the woods and were both really worried about the state of the world's forests. And, yeah, we set off to try to save the world's forests, um, doing whatever it was that we could do. And, yeah, recognising that as an individual, there's obviously a limit to that, but also recognising that we'd got skills and wanted to try, at least, to apply them to that problem. And so went out seeking other people who were trying to work to save forests and the people who who live in the forests as well. Bill's um, background is as a land rights campaigner and land law legal expert. And, and so working with Indigenous people who are struggling for their own rights to stay in the forests and to, to look after them as they have traditionally done so um, is, a, is a really important part of that. And I, as a writer, have inhabit this paradox where, you know, I want vast amounts of paper to come pouring off the presses with my words written on them. You know, I write novel novels and I want lots of them to be read by people. But on the other hand, I know what the paper industry is doing to the world's forests. And, you know, I want that to stop so for me, that that paradox has been a driver for work that I've done over the over the past fifteen years or so. Working with other paper industry campaigners has been a huge part of my life because there are sustainable ways by which paper can be produced. But like you say, I suppose a lot of everybody's lives, I suppose, are paradoxes in terms of how they live and how they want to live. And I suppose one question as well that I wanted to ask you was about money because however much somebody wants to live in harmony with nature and with nature we all live in this culture that relies on paying for things with cash so how do you and your husband obviously you're crofted how how do you and your husband uh, fund what you do how, how do you get your money how do you earn your money well bill's now retired so uh he's yeah he's on he's got a pension i have like i said i mean i've i've worked as a campaigner and so both both of us have skills um bill had legal skills and i have it skills and writing skills and i've worked at freelance with a whole range of organizations from uh, research centers to environmental campaign organizations and the bulk of my livelihood has been working as a writer and researcher and latterly i've been teaching more i think as i get older i kind of want to give back to the next generation but you're proof that it can work and so yeah. is your husband you obviously this is another kind of amusing question i want to ask really but you obviously spend a lot of time together with your husband how do you find that because i suppose this is the other thing that people might be thinking is you know packing in their day job and going to live in the woods and uh, or living you know closer to environments that that they particularly like but the idea of perhaps living so closely with their partner for so many hours might be like, oh, my God, can I do that? Do you find that easy? Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we when we first got together, we lived in a very small caravan. And so we're kind of, kind of used to inhabiting a small space together. But we live, yeah, like I said, we've got 24 acres here. And so we can be at opposite ends of the croft for much of the day, actually. Um, and so, yeah, it's... It's not a problem. I mean, and we just we just get on well, so it's it's never been a, a problem really. When we first got together, we did work together all the time, and that has got. If you're doing exactly the same work all of the time, then it can be difficult to find other things to talk about over dinner. But la yeah, for much of that time, actually, we've done different things, and so so there's 
never been a shortage of things to talk about. So yeah, not a problem. Yeah, I can really relate to that as well, because I spend a lot of time with my husband. We work and live together as well. But I think the key for us sometimes, and it took a while to learn it, is just to say to each other regularly, okay, let's put this to one side. Uh, Let's go and have a day out somewhere or have a pub lunch or, you know, go and see some friends or something like that. Yeah, and I think it needs to be the case that that more of life is about recreation and wonder and having pleasure than work. work. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, which is why sailing is great because it's not work. Although I write on the on the boat, it's a really nice place to to write. Um, sitting at anchor somewhere without internet is a really good opportunity to get to get words out. So, so I do write on the boat, but it is largely pleasure, and that's that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I know when we finish here today, that's where you're headed. So I better not hold you up for too much longer. But in terms of the wisdom that you'd like to share with women listening today who are perhaps contemplating their job, perhaps thinking about getting out of the rat race, uh, what wisdom would you would you share in terms of your story and what you've learned? Well, yeah, first of all, um, if it feels like that's what you need to do, then just go for it. Get out of the box. And yeah, if you free up the time and space, then then the right things will will come and and fill it and um yeah don't don't be frightened i think that's the the key thing and and also don't worry that that there's some huge work to be done to get back to nature because there isn't we 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 are already there and you just need to remember that mm. yeah you really believe that don't you that it's not a case of disconnection and reconnection it's just remembering and relaxing yeah Absolutely. We are animals, just like the fox and the deer and um, the mouse. What's the, I'm going to ask you the last three questions I always ask women on this podcast in a second, but what, in terms of where you live now, what's been the most amazing thing that you've seen or, or been part of um, since you've lived up, up where you live now? Um, gosh, that's a hard one. Um I mean, the most amazing things I've seen in the world have been bears, but we don't have them here, which I think is why I wrote two novels, one about the extinction of bears here, why they aren't here, and one about how they might come back in the future. There's a cave here called Bear Cave where bones of bears were found, and they're the, pretty much the most recent bones in Britain. So there is that sense that this is territory where bears should be. So in a funny sort of way, the absence of bears is the most profound presence for me in in these woods. Mm. And and we, at some level, as humans, have to kind of play their role in a funny sort of way, spreading seeds, for example, which is the most important thing that bears do in the landscape. So moving nuts and around is an important thing to do. So... I'm not, I'm not sure if that's... That that's, that's a great answer. And as I'm talking to you, uh, your Skype picture is a bear. So I'm looking straight <laughs> straight at a bear while we're having this conversation. Do you ever get a sense of the spirit of the bear where you are? Well, yeah, like I say, I mean, that's that's the most tangible presence in, in the woods, mm. for sure. Absolutely. So even though the bear's not physically there, there's definitely a spiritual presence of it still. Yeah, without doubt. I mean, that's that's how after the ice age, that's how the oak trees got here. You know, 
without them, the the woods that are biologically called Atlantic oak woods are they can't spread and move around and regain territory without without the bears. So yeah, no, no, no they're definitely here. Wow. Well, Mandy, if people want to find out more about you and your husband's work um, and the things that you do, perhaps are inspired by our conversation today, you have got a website, haven't you, for people to check out? Yeah, sure. www.mandyhaggis.net. Lovely. Go and have a look at that. And Mandy runs retreats and, as I say, writes poetry. And you're also a poet in residence, aren't you? A very well-known botanical gardens in Scotland yeah, this too. Yeah, Really exciting project that I'm working with five other women um, who, as we're six artists in residence at Inverview Garden, um, and which is yeah an amazing West Coast Scotland garden, also out on a peninsula. Well, best of luck with that. And like I say, if you want to find out more about Mandy, then do please check out her website. Before you go now, though, I'm going to ask you three quick questions just so we can get to know you better. I ask all women that appear on this programme the same question. So let's see what what you've come up with. The first question is um, ideally not a relative, but which woman in history, myth, legend, present day inspires you the most? Yeah, I thought long and hard about this. I knew you were going to ask this. And um, I eventually came down to Margaret Atwood, on the basis that, yeah, I hugely admire her writing as a novelist and as a poet. And and also she's somebody who has used her credibility as a, as a writer to support environmental campaigns and to argue really coherently that we need to, particularly to protect forests. And she's, she's woven that into her writing as well, but she also has done very practical things like, you know, asking her publishers to respect her, desire for the paper that her books are printed on to be sustainably sourced um so yeah she's she's somebody i hugely admire okay margaret atwood brilliant mm-hmm. choice next question which book have you gifted the most not your favorite book necessarily but the one that you've gifted the most yeah that's a book called prodigal summer by barbara kingsolver prodigal summer is a story of three women and it's absolutely brilliant yeah just if you haven't read it, read it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I don't want you to give too much away because um, that sounds like one that I'd I'd like to have a look at. Mm. And the last question, Mandy, in terms of your story today and your challenge, which song sums up what you've been through the most? Uh, so that was that's I think the most difficult of all three. And um, eventually, plump for a song called Moon River by Mary Black. Um, oh, great choice. Yeah, it's it was a song when I first start when I first ran away. The sort of soundtrack was that song, Moon River, off to see the world. There's such a lot of world to see. Yeah, that was um, that was my that was my runaway song. Do you know what? I don't think it's his absolute favorite song, but it's certainly up there in the top three of my husband's favorite songs. That one, he plays it all the time. Oh, brilliant! A man of taste. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good choice brilliant Mandy I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us and giving us a glimpse into your life and who knows how many women uh, are going to be inspired by your by your story about relaxing and remembering um, mother nature that's all we have to do yeah 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 indeed well it's lovely to speak to you thank you very much I'm Jo Wise, and you've been listening to Wise Women, the podcast. You can follow Wise Women on Instagram, Facebook, and the website 
www.wisewomen.org.uk. Remember, wise is spelt with a Y. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate and review this podcast. I look forward to you joining me next time for another Wise Women episode.